Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on patreon.com. Sarah May, Susan Young, Katrina Patsagianis, Tracy Lynn, Teresa McDermott, Jennifer and Derek Frakes, and Katie. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of Making the Sleepy Podcast. And for anyone who doesn't know, all of these names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a website you can go on and support creators of the work that you like so if the show has helped you get a better night's sleep and wake up more refreshed the next day consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating even a dollar a month it goes a really long way and at five dollars a month you get cool perks like access to our exclusive poetry feed where i send you extra poetry readings every month And you also get entered into all of our book raffles where we give away the physical copies of the books that we read on the show. And no matter how much you donate, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show. So if you'd like to be a part of making the Sleepy Podcast, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Levkowski. And the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, I am getting back to one of my favorite things to do on this show, which is read old Greek myths. I'm going to read two different myths tonight, both by the author and poet Catherine Pyle in the early 1900s. I'm going to start off with the story of Echo and Narcissus, and then I'm going to go right along to the story of Arachne. These are both wonderful tales, and you're going to hear them play over again while you doze off into a deep, deep slumber. So now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed, get real comfortable, close your eyes, and let me read to you.
Echo, and Narcissus. At times it pleased great Zeus to take upon himself some earthly form, and so descend from Olympus and amuse himself among the mortals for a time. But Hera, his queen, was jealous of these pleasures, and whenever she learned that he had gone, she would follow him and search the whole world through until she found him. Then she would weary him with angry words and with reproaches till, for the sake of peace, he would return with her to his high palace on Olympus. But once, when Hera followed him there, he hid himself in a deep wood and bade the nymph Echo to go meet his queen and keep her for a while and talk until he could escape unseen back to Olympus. This Echo did. Of all the nymphs, she was the wittiest and the most cunning. She hastened forth, and meeting the goddess on her way, began at once to pour into her ears some curious tale of something she had lately seen. So strange was the tale that, though Hera was in haste, she stayed to listen. Then when the story had reached its end, she would have gone again upon her way. But now, it was some even stranger tale Echo had to tell. So she kept Hera listening there, till Zeus was safely back upon Olympus. His queen found him there, when she returned at last, outwearied from her searching on the earth. He was enthroned again in his high hall, in all his majesty and glory. But Hera guessed the trick that had been played upon her, and in wrath she cried, Never again shall Echo's cunning tongue be used for deceiving others. All her wit shall now avail her nothing, for she shall never again be able to put into words her cunning thoughts. And she took from Echo all power of speech, except that of repeating what she heard others say. Now piteous indeed was Echo's case, and the more piteous because she loved a youth named Narcissus. He was the fairest youth on all the earth, so beauteous indeed that many a nymph had pined for love of him. But Narcissus scorned them all and fled from their sighs and tender looks. Echo might perhaps in time have won his love by her wit, if she could have put it into words, but now she could not, and he fled from her as from the others. But one day she hid herself among the bushes in a wood where he often came, with the hope that, thinking himself alone, he might breathe out some tender word or sigh she could repeat to him. It was not long before she saw him come. He was weary from the chase and threw himself down beneath a tree to rest. Hi-oh, he sighed. 
I owe, Echo repeated softly. Who is there? cried Narcissus, starting up. Is there? answered Echo. Is it a friend? A friend, replied the nymph. Then come to me. Come to me, Echo cried joyously, and springing from the thicket where she had lain hidden, she ran to him with outstretched arms. But Narcissus drew back from her with frowning brows. I know thee now, he cried. Thou art one of those who have followed me. I do not want thy love. Want thy love, the nymph repeated piteously, holding out to him her arms. But Narcissus answered more sharply still, Away, and touch me not, and never follow me again. Follow me again, cried Echo. But already Narcissus was gone from her. He had fled away more swiftly than she could follow him, and from that day he hid from her so that she could not find him. Then the poor nymph grieved bitterly. Day after day she spent in tears and sad complaints until at last her sorrow melted her flesh away. Her bones became rocks, and at last nothing was left of her but a wandering voice that haunted caves and cliffs, answering back the calls and cries of others. But before she had vanished quiet, the nymph breathed out a silent prayer to Aphrodite that some day Narcissus himself might feel a sorrow like to hers, might pine with love of one who neither could nor would return that love. Her silent prayer was granted, and thus it came to pass that Narcissus entered once a lonely wood where he had never been before, and there came to a pool as still and bright as polished silver. Never deer or bird or any living thing had found that pool until Narcissus came. Thirsty after his wanderings, he knelt to drink, and as he bent above the pool, he saw himself reflected in the water. Yet, he did not know it was his own image that he saw. He thought it was some nymph or naiad who lived there in the pool, one lovelier far than any he had ever seen before. Filled with delight, he gazed, then suddenly plunged his arms down into the pool and sought to seize the lovely thing. But at once the water broke into ripples and his reflection disappeared. Narcissus drew back with beating heart and breathlessly waited, hoping it would appear again, yet fearing that he had frightened it away forever. Then, as the pool grew still, 
His image showed again there in the water. More gently now, Narcissus moved, stooping down toward it, and always as he stooped nearer and nearer, so the image seemed to rise up toward him, until it was as though in a moment their lips would meet. But when he thought to kiss those lips, t'was only the chill water that he touched. Again and still again he tried to grasp the image, but always at his touch it disappeared. And now the unhappy youth spent all his days there by the pool, filled with hopeless love of his own image. He neither ate nor slept, but pined and pined with love, even as Echo had, until at last he pined his life away. Then from the field and woods arose a sound of mourning. Voices cried, Narcissus the beautiful is dead, is dead. Youths and nymphs, dryads and fawns lamented over him, while Echo repeated every sigh and sad complaint she heard. The funeral pyre was built on which they thought to lay the lovely form of dead Narcissus, but when they went to look for it, it had disappeared. Instead, they found only in the spot where it had lain, a snow-white flower. It was a flower different from any they had ever seen before, and guessing that the gods had changed him into this form, they called it by his name. And ever since, that flower has been known everywhere as the Narcissus, loveliest of blooms, even as of old that first Narcissus was the loveliest of youths. Arachne There was once a girl named Arachne who could spin and weave so skillfully that it was said no one in all the world could equal her. This she herself believed and she became so proud and vain she thought herself better than any others. She even scorned her parents, who were humble folk. Her father dyed the wool and flax she used, and this he did so skillfully that Arachne had her choice of almost every shade and tint from Tyrian purple, crimson and deep blue, to palest shades of amber, rose, and green. These she wove into patterns new and strange, each different, and each, so it would seem, more beautiful than the others. People came from far and near to see her work, and even the nymphs left their fields and woods to gather round her loom and watch her weaving. Once, as they watched her thus, she heard them whispering among themselves. Surely, Athena herself must have taught Arachne how to weave. How else could a mortal maiden have such skill? 
but this offended Arachne, and she cried out angrily, Athena has taught me nothing, all that I know I learned of myself, and I will dare to say if Athena in person were to come and try her skill with mine, she scarcely could outdo me. Nay, I will say more than that, I doubt if she could even equal me. These boasting words frightened the nymphs, so that they fled away to the woods and hid themselves. They feared Athena's wrath might fall not only on the maid who boasted this, but even upon those who listened to her. The goddess, indeed, had long since noticed the pride and vanity of Arachne, and now she decided to teach the girl a lesson. So she took on herself the form of an old woman, wrinkled and bent and meanly clad, and in this form she appeared before Arachne and spoke to her. Proud girl, she said, thy boasts are like thyself, both vain and foolish. How dost thou dare to think that any mortal maid could equal a goddess in her skill? Dost thou not fear thy pride may bring down on thy head the wrath of Athena? Arachne, at these words from one who seemed so old and poor, was filled with anger, and she cried, If what I said were only vain boasting, then let Athena come and prove it. I am ready here and now to try my skill with hers. If I fail, I will most willingly accept whatever punishment she may choose to lay upon me. But if I win, then let her own before both gods and men that my skill is greater than her own. Only let her come. She is already here, Athena answered, and with these words her disguise dropped from her, and she stood forth before Arachne in all her brightness and her majesty. Then the girl trembled, but Athena cried, Come, now, set up thy loom, and I will set up mine beside it, and we will try our skill against each other, as thou hast said. Arachne was still somewhat afraid, but presently she gathered her courage together and set up her loom. Athena's was put close beside it, and the two took their places. With skillful hands they stretched their woofs, smoothly and tightly across either loom, and then took up their shuttles and began to weave. Their hands flew so swiftly back and forth that the eye could not follow them. Soon colors and designs began to show upon the looms. On Athena's web was pictured forth the glories of the gods, the mighty deeds of heroes, and the rewards that had been meted out to them. There Zeus was shown, reigning high above the heavens, with many of the gods and goddesses gathered about him. There was shown Phoebus, driving his shining chariot across the sky 
and shedding down light and happiness on mankind. Ceres, in bountainous kindness, led out the harvesters to the fields of ripened grain. The hero Perseus was shown slaying the monster Medusa. Bellerophon, soaring on the winged horse Pegasus to slay the flaming dragon Chimera. Aphrodite mourning in tender grief over Adonis. Princess Andromeda lifted up to heaven and throned among the stars. All these and many other things Athena pictured forth with a mortal skill and beauty. Last of all, she wove about the whole a border of a pale olive blooms and fruit beloved to the gods. So was her task complete. But Arachne's web was of a different kind. She chose to picture with her threads all the evil deeds the gods had done. There was shown the earth torn and destroyed while titans and gods battled together. There was shown Prometheus bound in misery while vultures tore at him. Atlas warily bearing up the weight of all the heavens. Europa, the princess who was carried off by Zeus in the form of a bull. Niobe, the queen who asked to be worshipped as a goddess, weeping over her children slain as punishment by the gods. There were shown wretched mortals being turned by jealous goddesses to beasts or serpents or to stones. Pictures of these and many other evil things Arachne wove upon her loom, and all with such skill that every god and goddess might be known and told from each other. Then last she wove about it all the border of such flowers as Persephone, Ceres' daughter, had dropped when Hades stole from her the bright upper world and carried her down to the dark realm of spirits. So her task, too, was finished. But when Athena looked and saw what she had done, she was filled with rage. She struck the shuttle from Arachne's hand and tearing the web from the loom, she rent it up and down and trampled it underfoot. Thou wretched one, she cried, hast thou no reverence? Dost thou even dare to mock the gods themselves? But thou shalt not go unpunished. Never again shall thy two skillful hands drive the shuttle back and forth to picture out thy evil and irreverent thoughts. So saying, she struck Arachne on her forehead with her shuttle. At once all power left Arachne's hands and arms. She could not lift them up. She could not move her fingers even, though she strove with all her might. Then in despair she cried, Take not away my power of weaving, O Athena. Rather, take my life. Better to die than live helpless and scorned by all.
Then Athena, even in her anger, pitied her and said, Thou shalt keep thy life and even keep thy power to weave, but not as before. Again she touched Arachne's forehead with her shuttle, but gently now. Then a strange thing was seen, for Arachne at that touch began to change and shrink. Smaller and smaller still she grew. Her body became round, her color gray, her head so small it scarcely could be seen, her soft arms disappeared, and on each side she had instead three thin, long, agile legs. By Athena's will, she had been changed into an insect, one different from any other insect in the world, the first of all the spiders. She was a spinner still. Athena had left her with her power to weave, as she had promised, but she now could show no colors and no pictures on her webs. The power of making such was gone from her. They all were alike, all thin and white and frail, so that the merest, lightest touch could break the threads and tear them into shreds. Arachne and time had children, and they were spiders too, and they had children of their own, until at last there were thousands of spiders in the world, all spinning webs, but all those webs were plain and colorless and frail, as were the ones that their first mother wove after she lost her human form, and by Athena's will was humbled and brought low. Echo and Narcissus At times it pleased great Zeus to take upon himself some earthly form and so descend from Olympus and amuse himself among the mortals for a time. But Hera, his queen, was jealous of these pleasures, and whenever she learned that he had gone, she would follow him and search the whole world through until she found him. Then she would weary him with angry words and with reproaches till, for the sake of peace, he would return with her to his high palace on Olympus. But once, when Hera followed him there, he hid himself in a deep wood and bade the nymph Echo to go meet his queen and keep her for a while and talk until he could escape unseen back to Olympus. This Echo did. Of all the nymphs, she was the wittiest and the most cunning. She hastened forth, and meeting the goddess on her way, began at once to pour into her ears some curious tale of something she had lately seen. So strange was the tale that, though Hera was in haste, she stayed to listen. Then when the story had reached its end, she would have gone again upon her way. But now, it was some even stranger tale Echo had to tell. 
so she kept Hera listening there till Zeus was safely back upon Olympus. His queen found him there when she returned at last, outwearied from her searching on the earth. He was enthroned again in his high hall in all his majesty and glory. But Hera guessed the trick that had been played upon her, and in wrath she cried, Never again shall Echo's cunning tongue be used for deceiving others. All her wit shall now avail her nothing, for she shall never again be able to put into words her cunning thoughts. And she took from Echo all power of speech, except that of repeating what she heard others say. Now piteous indeed was Echo's case, and the more piteous because she loved a youth named Narcissus. He was the fairest youth on all the earth, so beauteous indeed that many a nymph had pined for love of him. But Narcissus scorned them all and fled from their sighs and tender looks. Echo might perhaps in time have won his love by her wit, if she could have put it into words, but now she could not, and he fled from her as from the others. But one day she hid herself among the bushes in a wood where he often came, with the hope that, thinking himself alone, he might breathe out some tender word or sigh she could repeat to him. It was not long before she saw him come. He was weary from the chase and threw himself down beneath a tree to rest. Hi-ho, he sighed. Hi-ho, Echo repeated softly. Who is there? cried Narcissus, starting up. Is there? answered Echo. Is it a friend? A friend, replied the nymph. Then come to me. Come to me, Echo cried joyously, and springing from the thicket where she had lain hidden, she ran to him with outstretched arms. But Narcissus drew back from her with frowning brows, I know thee now, he cried. Thou art one of those who have followed me. I do not want thy love. Want thy love, the nymph repeated piteously, holding out to him her arms. But Narcissus answered more sharply still, Away, and touch me not, and never follow me again. Follow me again, cried Echo. But already Narcissus was gone from her. He had fled away more swiftly than she could follow him, and from that day he hid from her so that she could not find him. Then the poor nymph grieved bitterly. Day after day she spent in tears and sad complaints 
until at last her sorrow melted her flesh away. Her bones became rocks, and at last nothing was left of her but a wandering voice that haunted caves and cliffs, answering back the calls and cries of others. But before she had vanished quiet, the nymph breathed out a silent prayer to Aphrodite that some day Narcissus himself might feel a sorrow like to hers, might pine with love of one who neither could nor would return that love. Her silent prayer was granted, and thus it came to pass that Narcissus entered once a lonely wood where he had never been before, and there came to a pool as still and bright as polished silver. Never deer or bird or any living thing had found that pool until Narcissus came. Thirsty after his wanderings, he knelt to drink, and as he bent above the pool, he saw himself reflected in the water. Yet, he did not know it was his own image that he saw. He thought it was some nymph or naiad who lived there in the pool, one lovelier far than any he had ever seen before. Filled with delight, he gazed, then suddenly plunged his arms down into the pool and sought to seize the lovely thing. But at once the water broke into ripples and his reflection disappeared. Narcissus drew back with beating heart and breathlessly waited, hoping it would appear again, yet fearing that he had frightened it away forever. Then, as the pool grew still, his image showed again there in the water. More gently now, Narcissus moved, stooping down toward it, and always as he stooped nearer and nearer, so the image seemed to rise up toward him, until it was as though in a moment their lips would meet. But when he thought to kiss those lips, was only the chill water that he touched. Again and still again he tried to grasp the image, but always at his touch it disappeared. And now the unhappy youth spent all his days there by the pool, filled with hopeless love of his own image. He neither ate nor slept but pined and pined with love, even as Echo had, until at last he pined his life away. Then from the field and woods arose a sound of mourning. Voices cried, Narcissus the beautiful is dead, is dead. Youths and nymphs, dryads and fawns lamented over him, while Echo repeated every sigh and sad complaint she heard. A funeral pyre was built on which they thought to lay the lovely form of dead Narcissus, but when they went to look for it, it had disappeared. 
Instead, they found only, in the spot where it had lain, a snow-white flower. It was a flower different from any they had ever seen before. And guessing that the gods had changed him into this form, they called it by his name. And ever since, that flower has been known everywhere as the Narcissus, loveliest of blooms, even as of old. That first Narcissus was the loveliest of youths. Arachne There was once a girl named Arachne who could spin and weave so skillfully that it was said no one in all the world could equal her. This she herself believed, and she became so proud and vain she thought herself better than any others. She even scorned her parents, who were humble folk. Her father dyed the wool and flax she used, and this he did so skillfully that Arachne had her choice of almost every shade and tint from Tyrian purple crimson and deep blue to palest shades of amber, rose and green. These she wove into patterns new and strange, each different, and each, so it would seem, more beautiful than the others. People came from far and near to see her work, and even the nymphs left their fields and woods to gather round her loom and watch her weaving. Once, as they watched her thus, she heard them whispering among themselves. Surely, Athena herself must have taught Arachne how to weave. How else could a mortal maiden have such skill? But this offended Arachne, and she cried out angrily, Athena has taught me nothing. All that I know I learned of myself, and I will dare to say if Athena, in person, were to come and try her skill with mine, she scarcely could outdo me. Nay, I will say more than that. I doubt if she could even equal me. These boasting words frightened the nymphs, so that they fled away to the woods and hid themselves. They feared Athena's wrath might fall not only on the maid who boasted this, but even upon those who listened to her. The goddess, indeed, had long since noticed the pride and vanity of Arachne, and now she decided to teach the girl a lesson. So she took on herself the form of an old woman, wrinkled and bent and meanly clad, and in this form she appeared before Arachne and spoke to her. Proud girl, she said, thy boasts are like thyself, both vain and foolish. How dost thou dare to think that any mortal maid could equal a goddess in her skill? Dost thou not fear Thy pride may bring down on thy head the wrath of Athena. 
Arachne, at these words from one who seemed so old and poor, was filled with anger, and she cried, If what I said were only vain boasting, then let Athena come and prove it. I am ready here and now to try my skill with hers. If I fail, I will most willingly accept whatever punishment she may choose to lay upon me. But if I win, then let her own before both gods and men that my skill is greater than her own. Only let her come. She is already here, Athena answered, and with these words her disguise dropped from her, and she stood forth before Arachne in all her brightness and her majesty. Then the girl trembled, but Athena cried, Come, now, set up thy loom, and I will set up mine beside it, and we will try our skill against each other, as thou hast said. Arachne was still somewhat afraid, but presently she gathered her courage together and set up her loom. Athena's was put close beside it, and the two took their places. With skillful hands they stretched their woofs smoothly and tightly across either loom, and then took up their shuttles and began to weave. Their hands flew so swiftly back and forth that the eye could not follow them. Soon colors and designs began to show upon the looms. On Athena's web was pictured forth the glories of the gods, the mighty deeds of heroes, and the rewards that had been meted out to them. There Zeus was shown, reigning high above the heavens, with many of the gods and goddesses gathered about him. There was shown Phoebus, driving his shining chariot across the sky and shedding down light and happiness on mankind. Ceres, in bountainous kindness, led out the harvesters to the fields of ripened grain. The hero Perseus was shown slaying the monster Medusa. Bellerophon, soaring on the winged horse Pegasus to slay the flaming dragon Chimera, Aphrodite mourning in tender grief over Adonis, Princess Andromeda lifted up to heaven and throned among the stars. All these and many other things Athena pictured forth with immortal skill and beauty. Last of all, she wove about the whole border of a pale olive blooms and fruit beloved to the gods. So was her task complete. But Arachne's web was of a different kind. She chose to picture with her threads all the evil deeds the gods had done. There was shown the earth torn and destroyed while titans and gods battled together. There was shown Prometheus, bound in misery while vultures tore at him. Atlas, warily bearing up the weight of all the heavens. Europa, the princess who was carried off by Zeus in the form of a bull. 
Niobe, the queen who asked to be worshipped as a goddess, weeping over her children slain as punishment by the gods. There were shown wretched mortals being turned by jealous goddesses to beasts or serpents or to stones. Pictures of these and many other evil things Arachne wove upon her loom, and all with such skill that every god and goddess might be known and told from each other. Then, last, she wove about it all the border of such flowers as Persephone, Ceres' daughter, had dropped when Hades stole from her the bright upper world and carried her down to the dark realm of spirits. So her task, too, was finished. But when Athena looked and saw what she had done, she was filled with rage. She struck the shuttle from Arachne's hand and tearing the web from the loom, she rent it up and down and trampled it underfoot. Thou wretched one, she cried, hast thou no reverence? Dost thou even dare to mock the gods themselves? But thou shalt not go unpunished. Never again shall thy two skillful hands drive the shuttle back and forth to picture out thy evil and irreverent thoughts. So saying, she struck Arachne on her forehead with her shuttle. At once all power left Arachne's hands and arms. She could not lift them up. She could not move her fingers even, though she strove with all her might. Then in despair she cried, Take not away my power of weaving, O Athena. Rather, take my life. Better to die than live helpless and scorned by all. Then Athena, even in her anger, pitied her and said, Thou shalt keep thy life and even keep thy power to weave, but not as before. Again she touched Arachne's forehead with her shuttle, but gently now. Then a strange thing was seen, for Arachne, at that touch, began to change and shrink. Smaller and smaller still she grew. Her body became round, her color gray, her head so small it scarcely could be seen, her soft arms disappeared, and on each side she had instead three thin, long, agile legs. By Athena's will, she had been changed into an insect, one different from any other insect in the world, the first of all the spiders. She was a spinner still. Athena had left her with her power to weave as she had promised, but she now could show no colors and no pictures on her webs. The power of making such was gone from her. They all were alike, all thin and white and frail, so that the merest, lightest touch could break the threads and tear them into shreds. 
Arachne and Time had children, and they were spiders too, and they had children of their own, until at last there were thousands of spiders in the world, all spinning webs, but all those webs were plain and colorless and frail, as were the ones that their first mother wove after she lost her human form, and by Athena's will was humbled and brought low. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.